Welcome to the Redeemer Church Podcast. Thanks for listening in on our sermon series through the Book of Romans. Throughout history, this has been regarded as the greatest letter ever written. It has been used by God to change people's lives for centuries, and we have prayed that God would use it to change your life as well. In a world full of bad news, Romans is about good news, and we hope God uses this sermon to help you believe and enjoy the good news of the gospel. Thanks for listening. The scripture for today is Romans 8, 2 through 11. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Amen. 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 Good morning. Good to see you. Welcome to Redeemer and happy Father's Day. Uh, What an incredible day. What an awesome honor it is to be a dad. One of the greatest honors of my life. And I know the fathers in the room would share that sentiment to have some kids that you get to love and you get to provide for and you get to protect and you get to teach and show what it means to follow Jesus. So I hope that you had a chance to honor your father. Uh, Just like Mother's Day, for many of you, this brings a lot of mixed emotions, but we do want to set aside just a minute to, uh, to honor dads, um, because I think that's one of the most powerful things on the planet is a dad that loves Jesus and is willing to lay his life down for his uh, bride, for his family, to show them and to teach them in word and indeed what it truly means to follow Jesus. So praise God for dads. Uh, uh, God is doing something unbelievable, um, not only in the world, not only in our nation, but in our church. I just love watching dads. I love watching dads praying over their wives and praying over their kids and bringing their families up to take communion and teaching them what that means. And if you have a kid in the room, uh, praise God. We, I want to invite you to bring your kids into the service. If they are distracting, uh, that's what kids do. I'm fairly difficult to distract. I have three kids and oftentimes I study from the house when they're all in the house. And so I'm fairly difficult to distract. So I think it's important, dads and moms, to bring kids in. Let them see the family worshiping and singing and praying and taking communion together. So I'm excited that you're here. Um, if, if you're brand new to Redeemer, just a little bit of an update on just kind of what we're doing and why we gather together like this. The church has been doing this since Jesus started the church. Uh, we come together, gather together once a week, and there's a give portion and there's a take portion. Uh, so in a very consumeristic culture like we live in, that a lot of it is just geared towards what we need to take and receive. I just want to remind you that part of our, our times together to worship is a giving portion 
redemption. That's what we just did, singing. That's a time that we come together and we get to give. We want to sing about Jesus and, and, and who God is, what he's done for us. Let all of our voices gather together to give something to God. So I want to really remind us to maybe uh, work against the culture where this time is maybe set aside as not as important. Like it's just kind of the buffer before the information and the sermon. But the, it's the singing time is an unbelievable time for us to gather together as a church to unify our voices and to give something to God. That time is not necessarily for us to take, but for us to give. Um, my kids love to chant things. I don't know if uh, your children do this, but every once in a while they'll get together in a little huddle, uh, which it can go one of two ways. Sometimes you get really nervous when they start huddling, but oftentimes they're coming up with a chant. Sometimes it's like, we want ice cream, we want ice cream, and they join their voices together and they chant. Uh, but a few days ago they huddled together and I thought, Uh, This is going to be great. And they came out of the huddle, and Judah is normally the instigator, and so he starts the chant, and the chant was, Dad is the best! Dad is the best! And just in 100% honesty and transparency, I think I enjoyed it more probably than I should have. I was thinking, you know, this is probably a great time to be humble. I was like, you know, kids, you don't don't need to do that. Uh, Just stop it, you know. But there, there's something unique about when there's like a voice of your children that gather together to declare the same thing. When we come together as a church and a faith family, that's in essence what we're doing. Both Old and New Testament talk about how important it is for us to not just sing individually to God, but to join our voices collectively in one voice to give thanks and to praise to God. So that's part of what we do when we gather. Uh, the receiving portion, we open up God's word and we have to, we, we're trying to receive what God has to say to us by way of encouragement, by way of direction, by way of correction. So there's a portion where we open up and we just want to receive. And at Redeemer, oftentimes what that looks like is us walking through books of the Bible, teaching through books of the Bible to see what God has to say to us. And in this season we're in, we're walking through, uh, it's the greatest book humanity has ever known. We know that, the Bible, and it's not even close in comparison to the scope and the impact it has had on humanity. So the greatest book in the world, the Bible, uh, what most people would call the greatest letter in that book, the most potent letter is the book of Romans, and what many theologians uh, would say the most important and impactful chapter in the most important letter in the most important book is, is Romans chapter 8. So we're opening up Romans chapter 8. If you have a Bible, I'll invite you to go there. And we're going to start in verse 2, and we're going all the way through verse 13, so we have quite a big chunk um, that we are looking at today. And what we found out last week is that Romans 8.1 is a hinge that splits the book in half. The first seven chapters, we're learning about the gospel. This is a description of the gospel, the good news about Jesus. And then the therefore is the hinge that shifts over to the implications of the gospel. Not just what the gospel is, but what the gospel does. What its effect is after you embrace the gospel and you receive the Lord Jesus Christ by grace through faith. It has internal things where it does certain things inside of you. And then it has external things where it changes things around you. And so we looked at Romans 8 uh, verse 1 last week that says, if anybody wants to quote it, you're welcome to. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. 
So last week what we looked at is that in Christ uh, we are free from legal condemnation, but this week uh, we're looking at what does it mean that we are not just free from legal condemnation, um, but we are free from sin's actual power in our lives, which is good news. How many of you would love some good news this morning? How many dads in the room would love some good news? How many moms in the room would love some good news? How many that aren't parents would love some good news? Listen, I don't care who you are, you're getting good news today. It's not just good news that we're not condemned and that we're declared innocent. It's incredible news that we are free from the power of sin in our lives, and that's what we're going to unpack today. Uh, Yesterday, we got to celebrate uh, as a state and as a country Juneteenth, uh, which we actually talked about a few weeks ago. Uh, This is a holiday that commemorates when, not, not when slaves were set free because they had already been declared legally free, but that word had not traveled yet to Texas and made its way to slaves. And so Juneteenth was a celebration of when they became aware of their legal freedom. And in some ways, maybe you didn't know this, but you are not a slave to sin. You are freed because of the gospel in Christ, freed from the indwelling power and presence of sin in your life, in your relationships, and everything that God has given you. And so three things I want to do today in this text. Number one, we're going to look at how did Jesus accomplish this freedom? If we're free from condemnation and we're free from sin's power, how did Jesus accomplish it? Number two, how do we live day by day in this freedom that Jesus has purchased for us? And number three, how seriously should we defend our freedom? That's where we're going. If you're in Romans chapter 8, verse 2, and you're excited about good news, say, ready? How did Jesus accomplish our freedom? Verses 2 through 4 says this. For the law of the spirit of life. Think about that as there's a new law in the land. There's a new thing that Jesus has done that we live underneath for the law of the spirit of life has set you free. And if you're an underliner, if you're a note taker or highlighter, that, that word free, that's the theme of today. It's true freedom. The law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the old law of the land, from the law of sin and death. For God has done. And you need to know this, especially if you're brand new to the church or new to Christianity, that the message of Jesus, the storyline of Christianity, the, the gospel what we talk about is the gospel, which means good news. It's not a list of things that you need to do. Oftentimes in a moralistic world, that's what you get. You want to know what it means to follow Jesus and you show up and maybe you Google something, maybe you talk to a Christian, maybe you show up to a church and all you hear is a list of things that you need to do. That's not the gospel. The gospel is a list of things that has already been done. It's a list, it's a declaration of good news that, hey, you don't have to do anything. This has already been done. He says it in verse 3, for God has already done. He has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. How did Jesus accomplish our freedom? Let's talk first, 
for just a moment about what it means when Paul here says the law of sin and death. Because that's what Jesus has set us free from, the law of sin and death. Don't think about this law as like a moral law. It's not, there's three different types when the Bible talks about the law. There's really three different ways. One way is maybe the first way that comes to mind. It's a, it's a list of things to do and not to do. Like the Ten Commandments would be the law. Uh, don't sin. Don't, don't, don't murder. Don't, don't lie. Don't commit adultery. That's not what this is talking about. Uh, this is talking about much more the idea of uh, something that is just uh, universally true, a force or a power, like the law of gravity. Um, the law of gravity is not something you have to obey, right? It's something you are forced to obey. You don't really get the choice. It's just universally true. Uh, Newton's laws of, of motion, that things tend to stay at rest unless acted upon by something, like those are just simply laws of nature that are true. This is what Paul is saying that we need to be rescued from. The law or the universally tr- the, the universal truth, the law of sin and death. And here's the law of sin and death. We are slaves to sin before Christ, and sin kills things. We are slaves to sin. We have to sin because of something broken in our nature, and sin kills things. And that's, can we agree, that's bad news? If sin kills things and we can't avoid it, that's not good. And, but, but that's the law of sin and death, that we, we sin, and sin leads to death. Proverbs chapter 14 verse 12 says this, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. This is the Old Testament saying like there is a a path of life and a path of death. And he's even saying sometimes we, we try to define that on our own. There's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. This side note is telling us that we don't define sin. We let God and the word of God define sin for us because sometimes we can think we're doing something right and it leads to death. Many of you have have lived that out in your lives, right? James chapter 1 verse 14 says this. It's talking about the, the natural progression of the law of sin and death. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. So the first step is temptation, when you're presented with this option to sin or to not sin. And then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. That's the law of sin and death. Sin kills things. It kills things spiritually. This is what God said in Genesis chapter 2 verse 17. He said, please obey me because if you disobey in the day that you do, you shall surely what? Die. Spiritual death. Man is dead, spiritually dead to God, cannot move, cannot act, cannot obey, cannot please, cannot respond to God because we are spiritually dead. It's all over Ephesians 1. We're dead spiritually. Why? Because the law of sin and death. Sin has made us spiritually dead. Uh, Sin causes physical death. Right? We're all going to die physically because of sin. Sin's natural progression is that it will end in death. Spiritual death, physical death. Romans says, for by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin, and therefore death has passed to all men, for all have sinned. Um, sin kills relationships. Right, sin kills relationships. There are m- most relationships that I have witnessed in my life that have been uh, broken, not just disintegrated because you moved to Midland or because of distance, um, but like the, there was still a physical proximity, but the relationship itself was destroyed or died. It's because of sin. We know this. 
If you lie, it's going to hurt a relationship. If you have a relationship with someone and you gossip or you slander or or you, you violate them in any type of sin, it kills the relationship. That's the law of sin and death. What kills marriages? Sin kills marriages. If there is sin in a marriage, it tends to kill things because God designed the world to operate in a certain way according to his character and therefore according to his laws. And so if he's designed the world to to work and to operate in a certain way and we violate that design, it's not going to work. It's like, I don't know if you've ever put uh, gasoline in a diesel engine, anyone? Uh, I was taking a group of men on a work trip to Galveston uh, quite a few years ago, and we did this, and so we spent quite a few hours with a sawed-off five-gallon bucket underneath draining the tank. Because if the engine's designed to work off of diesel and you put gasoline in it, it's going to cause problems. God has designed the world to operate in, a, in, 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 in harmony with his character, And sin is a violation of not just his character, but how God designed the world and relationships and even business and all the things in the world were designed to operate and to flourish through holiness. And when we sin, it violates the design. That's the law of sin and death. It even works in business. Uh, I did an MBA in Dallas years ago, and I was so interested because as I was studying a lot of these courses, and especially my, my leadership classes uh, inside of this, uh, this, this business setting, um, basically over time, uh, even, even non-Christian studies, if, if a non-Christian is just looking at the world and looking at business and trying to tell you how to have a good, healthy business uh, versus a business that's going to die, inevitably what they do is they'll separate into two categories. Do these things and your business will flourish. Don't do these things. Avoid these things or your business is going to die. Where do they separate it? Based on, they wouldn't say this, but sin or holiness. So an atheist would look at business and say, if, if you want your business to flourish, listen, don't lie, be honest, be full of integrity, treat your employees like you would want to be treated. Why? Why does that work? Because God has created things according to his character. So the the law of sin and death touches everything. It it affects relationships, marriages, businesses. The law of sin and death rules and reigns until Jesus shows up. And it says, for the law of the spirit of life has set us free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So this is like Jesus showing up saying he has defeated the old law like the old gravity that we just kind of lived under, and he's given us something new. So what is this new law, the law of the spirit of life? Three things that I want you to know about this. Number one, that God has done what we could not do. Okay, this, was, this is clear all throughout Romans that um, if, if the way to break the, the curse of, and, the, and the law of sin and death is to fully obey and, and be perfect towards the law, then we're just simply weakened by the flesh that we can't do that. How many of y'all are aware, aware, well aware that you're just not able to be perfect? Okay, I'm going to talk to you, some of you later. Like, in our own strength, if we're going to try to, to do what Jesus has done to accomplish fully obeying God's demands and God's law, we're just not going to make it real far in the day. 
Uh, I, I was looking at some races the other day because I'm getting excited because I, they, they rescheduled the Olympics. Did you all know this? 2021, Summer Olympics coming up. Uh, I, I love track and field, and I was tracking out uh, the person that won the marathon five years ago, and I found the pace that they were running, and I thought, you know, how long can I keep up that pace? Um, because they kept up that pace for 26.2 miles. You know how long I can keep that pace up? 350 yards. That's about it. Uh, so, like, the pace that Jesus ran his life in holiness and perfection, how long do you think you can keep that pace up? If you're like, listen, I'm going to uh, obey the law and be fully holy and righteous, let me just tell you, you're not going to make it real far if we define holiness the way Jesus does. So maybe like, okay, let's start with this one. Uh, don't murder. Piece of cake. I'm, I may make it all day. You know, if, if, my, if my kids obey, if they honor me on this Father's Day, and then Jesus is like, uh, uh, time out. If you hate someone, that's the same as murder. Can you make it through all the day without hating someone? Maybe you say, maybe, <laughs> unless I get on a Midland Road, maybe. Uh, anger, James talks about in your anger, do not sin. Again, you're like, I don't know that I could make it that long um, during the day. What about don't covet what about there's this command, don't desire something someone else has, and you get in your car to go to work and you see your neighbor's lawn, you see your neighbor's car, you see your neighbor's family, whatever it might be, covet, um, don't commit adultery. Some of you are like, I got that one finally. And Jesus says, um, actually goes deeper than you think. If you've ever looked at someone lustfully with your eyes and in your mind, you're guilty. Uh, and so you pass the billboard, you see something on your phone, you see a person, and all of a sudden you didn't make it as far in the day as you thought. Um, pure, do everything out of pure motives. Sometimes we can even do the right thing, but we just did it for the praise or for whatever it might bring glory to us. And can, how long can you make it in the day doing absolutely everything with a pure motive? And this one is just, uh, it's, it's, it's tough to get past this one. One of the commands that says, thou, thou shalt have no other gods before me, which means you got to make it throughout the entire day without loving anything more than God, being more excited about something than you are about Jesus. Like, like we're just not going to make it very far at the pace that Jesus ran his entire life. God has done something through Jesus that, one, we just simply could not do because, as Paul says, the, the law could not fix us because it was weakened by our flesh. Number two talking about what God has done in this new law, is that Jesus did it. So what we can't accomplish, listen, Jesus actually did it. He made it through his entire life without sinning in word and thought or deed, fully fulfilling the demands of the law. He came, it says, in the likeness of sinful flesh. The Son of God was sent, meaning that Jesus was in heaven with God before creation, that he is in fact deity, he is in fact God, and God invaded humanity. He became a human. He, he basically worked his way and broke into the prison of humanity so that he could fulfill the law for us and break us out of the prison from the inside. It's like Shawshank Redemption. Y'all remember this story with Andy and Red only? It's like gospel. It's like Jesus leading the way, not Andy and Red. I, sh I should probably tease that out a little more before I use it next time. Uh, Jesus did what we couldn't do. He did it, and then he gave it to us. The theological terms for this is that an imputation that Jesus, his, his resume is perfect. He pleased God and met all the requirements and then just handed it to us. 
imputed his resume and his good works to us. And I, I love the phrase that Paul uses here, so that God's righteous requirements might be fulfilled. He says, in us, not by us. That's very different. You don't have to fulfill the requirements of the law because Jesus did and he imputes them to you, puts them in you so that you meet God's requirements. The, 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 the requirements have been met not by you but in you. That's the new law. That's the new law that Jesus met it and he gives it to us for free. So that's like how did Jesus accomplish this freedom? That's how he did it. He invaded humanity, became like one of us, lived a perfect life, died in our place, imputed his righteousness to us. And so the next question is how then do we live in freedom? How then do we live in this freedom that Jesus has purchased for us? Go to verse 5. Romans 8, 5 through 11 says this, and it talks about the pathway for us day in and day out to live free from the effects of sin. And if you think about it, like, like th- this, this is the promise of the gospel, that he's not just released us from the legal penalty of our sin, but from the present power that we can, in the Holy Spirit, live a life as God designed us to live. As Paul is about to say, that is the pathway to life and to peace. Verse 5, for those who live according to the flesh, that's the desires of our hearts before we meet Jesus and he changes us. Uh, For those who live according to the flesh, they set their minds, they set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's laws. Indeed, it cannot, for those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, he's talking to Christians if you're in Christ. But you, however, you're not in the flesh, but you're in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness, if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. How do we live in freedom? He talks a lot about retraining our minds to think like the spirit, not like our flesh. Your mind is an unbelievably powerful tool and weapon, and it's also an incredible battlefield, um, that there's two opposing forces that are after your mind, uh, trying to get you to think certain ways and think on certain things. I want you to consider, and I'll read through just a few verses, um, consider how often the Bible encourages us to change and to be careful how and what we think. Because there's a direct link between your, your thoughts and your life. If you set the direction of your thoughts, you've set the direction of your life. Let me read a few for you. Philippians chapter 4, uh, verse 8. Uh, my son and I were doing this as a, as a memory verse a few weeks ago um, because there was a lot of bad things and things that we were um, very tempted to be very critical and negative about. So I said, let's do this together. Well, Philippians 4, 8 is Paul talking to Christians and he says, finally, brothers... Whatever is true, 
Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think on these things. And that word think, it's, it's, a, it's a deep word. It means to meditate on, to think about, to dwell on. Uh, Paul's saying, be careful how you think. Find the, 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 the true, the honest, the pure, the, 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 those things, and, and train your mind to, to, to focus on them. What about 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5? Paul says, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to the obedience of Jesus Christ. means if you have an evil thought or, 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 an, or an off thought, he says, you go take it captive. Like you grab it, you seize it, you arrest it, and you tell it what to do and where to go. We, we take captive every thought to the obedience of Jesus Christ. That's a very active way to describe how you should think as a Christian, if you're going to live in freedom. Colossians 2, or Colossians 3, verses 2 through 4, he says, set your mind. Um, my son and I, again, you're showing up a lot today, buddy. Happy Father's Day to me. Uh, also for Father's Day, I taught my youngest son how to mow a couple days ago, so that was just an awesome gift to myself. Now I have three small children that can mow the yard, and I can sip lemonade and just kind of tell them, you missed a spot. Colossians 3, 2, set your mind. We were setting some posts yesterday. We dug two holes and put two uh, pieces of drill stem pipe in the ground and set them in concrete. So if, you, if, you, if concrete sets, then it doesn't move. That's the word he's using. Set your mind. So, so do something actively to solidify your mind. About what? On what? On the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. What about Romans 12.1? I'm jumping ahead. We'll get there in a few months. But it says this. I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God, to present yourself as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual worship. And do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed. You're like, How? How, Pastor Jason, do we not be conformed to the the city and the culture that we live in? And how do we be transformed by the renewing of your what? Mind. You have to change the way you think. That's what Paul has just unpacked for us. He says, if you want to walk in freedom that Jesus has purchased for you, then be careful how you think. If you fix your mind on the flesh, you're going back to the old ways that lead to death. So you have to renew your mind. And he says in verse 5, I believe it was, to set your mind on the things of the Spirit. So how, I think this is a good question, if, if we all want the path of life, and I hope we do, like a life that is, is full of, of life and peace, as Paul just said, and the pathway to that is to, to fix our minds on the things of the Spirit, how do we do that? How do we set our mind on the things of the Spirit if that's what is promised to us to bring life and peace? I've got five things that I think we obey these commands by doing this. If you're going to set your minds, verse 5, on the things of the Spirit, number one, uh, learn to meditate on God's Word. The Holy Spirit actually wrote it, right? Like we believe that, that the Word of God, the Bible, was written by the Holy Spirit. So if you want to set your mind on the things of the Spirit, read the book he wrote. Like we believe it was, it was written by, by the, the, the hand and the pens of men, but it was inspired and dictated by the Holy Spirit. And so learn to meditate on God's Word. Here's a promise, uh, Psalm 1.1. 1, 1. 
Blessed is the man who walks not in the, <clears throat> excuse me, in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he, what? He meditates day and night. If you want your life to follow the pathway of this new law we've been given, learn to meditate on God's word. Open up your Bible in the morning, and I think this is a good exercise. Read your Bible in the morning until you find something to meditate on. Maybe it's a word, maybe it's a phrase, maybe it's a sentence, maybe it's an idea. I heard a pastor the other day recommend that uh, before you go to bed, set your Bible not just beside your bed or in your office or wherever you might read, but, but open it. He said it's really hard to ignore an open Bible. Open your Bible in the morning, read something, and learn to do what the, the psalmist says, to meditate on it day and night. If you're meditating on God's Word day and night, you're going to set your mind on things of the Spirit. Number two, think about holiness, not just sin. How many of you have ever, you know you were going to be in some kind of a setting where you were going to be tempted to say something stupid? And you told yourself, like, don't say anything stupid, don't say anything stupid, don't say anything stupid, don't say anything stupid. And you get up there, and what do you say? Something stupid. Because that's all you were thinking. Like, God, I did the one thing that I didn't want to do. Why? Because that's what you're focused on. If you're like, don't sin, don't sin, don't sin, don't sin, don't sin, what are you probably going to do? Sin. It's like, it's, 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 it's a different thing to just try not to sin than it is to try to actively pursue holiness, I was a college pastor um, for quite a while in, in Irving and in Dallas, and we had a lot of um, kids that were going to DBU, and one of the main questions I had when somebody began dating is they would basically ask the question of, like, like where is the line physically that we can't cross? And basically they were saying, how close can we get to that line before we've actually sinned? <laughs> so we're like, yeah, that was me. I asked that question. Uh, I, I, you know, my, my general reaction is like, that's a stupid question. It's like, how close can we get to evil before we actually commit evil? It's like, I think the better question is, what if you actually pose the question, how holy can we be? Like, like, it's like, uh, Jesus over here, Satan's over here, so I'm going to face this way and try and get as close as I can. Can we agree that that's just not maybe a healthy way to go about life? To fix your mind on things of the Spirit does not mean to just focus all the time on sin. To be aware of sin? Yes, absolutely. But to pursue righteousness. Paul tells this to young Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, verse 22. He says, yeah, flee youthful passions which most commentators, he's talking about sexual temptations to, to sin. He's, yeah, 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 flee those, but he says pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So to set your minds on the things of the Spirit doesn't mean you're focused all the time on just trying not to sin. It means you're trying to pursue what Paul says, righteousness, faith, love, peace, to fix your mind, Philippians 4.8, on things that are good. Number three, to think of yourself. If you want to truly walk uh, in, in freedom and think as the Spirit does, think of yourself as a son or a daughter. That's the, the next logical 
place that Paul goes in Romans chapter 8. We'll look at it in, in, in great depth next week. But he's saying that he's set us free from the laws of sin and death, instilled a new law of life, and he's also given us his spirit by which we call out, Abba, Father, we don't have the spirit to sink back into fear and slavery anymore. Some of you, your minds are so trained to think in fear and slavery and as a slave, not as a son or not as a daughter. So you train your mind to think, and this is what the Holy Spirit does. He teaches us and convinces us that we're, in fact, kids. So what an, what an incredible truth to think about on Father's Day, to train your mind to think that God is your father, that he's a good father, that he protects you, that he loves you, that you, you're not going to get kicked out of the family. He's not going to be so angry with you that he just punishes you. He's going to love you, to protect you, to uh, enjoy you, to train your mind to think as the Holy Spirit leads you, that you're a son or a daughter. Fifth, fourth thing has to do with exactly that. Verse 15 talks about God being our Abba Father. Think about God as a father. Some of you struggle to do this because of your fathers. Because we have a strong inclination to project our attitudes towards our earthly fathers onto our heavenly fathers. And I want to encourage you that no, no matter how good or bad your father is, God is a good father. And that word Abba, again, we're going we're gonna to look at it in great depth next week. It doesn't mean father. It means daddy. It's a, it's a, it's a familiar term that a, that a four-year-old would say when he crawls up in his dad's lap. He's like, Daddy, I just love you. Train yourself to think of God as father. That's how Jesus thought of him. That's how he taught us to pray. He said, pray like this, our Father who is in heaven. I think it's unbelievable that that's how God has chosen to reveal himself to us. He's chosen this metaphor for us to understand is that you think of the best father on the planet. That is how God is with his children. Think of him as father. And number five, think in terms of grace, not law. Think in terms of grace. If we're truly going to set our minds on the things of the Spirit, teach yourself to think in terms of grace, not the law, especially when you're talking about your own sin because oftentimes we try to deter ourselves from sinning and live holy lives, but we try to use the law. And this is what that means, and this is like kind of how that looks. Um, there's a Puritan named John Owen um, that wrote a book we're going to talk about in just a moment called The Mortification of Sin. And in that book, he talks about our temptation to... Uh, default to, to, to thinking in terms of the law, not in terms of grace. And he talks about when he sinned, he could ask the questions like, oh, if I sin, uh, then I probably don't need to sin because if I sin, God's going to be frustrated with us. He says that's law thinking. He says, if I can just stop sinning, then God's going to be just a little bit more pleased with me and proud of me and bless me a little more. Owen says, that's, that's law thinking. He says, even if you think, like, I should probably not do this thing that I'm being tempted to do because I'll regret it tomorrow. Anybody ever been there? He's like, that's law thinking. Even, even talking about how it might hurt others. He's like, that, that, that's how the, the old laws of sin and death, that's how we were trained to think if there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ and, and we want to fix our minds on, on the way the Holy Spirit thinks, we've got to consistently preach to ourselves and retrain our brains to think in terms of grace. 
In honor of Father's Day, I thought I would share a story about my father, uh, which uh, he doesn't know, I don't think. So if he's watching or listening, this can be news to him. But uh, when I was really young, back in elementary school in Bushland, um, we bought, bought our own lunch. You had to bring cash every day, and you get in line with your tray, and you get your lunch, and then you pay. And it was a dollar and ten cents. <sighs> Just miss those days. I remember my mom had two different jars. They were clear plastic jars. One had a blue lid, one had a red lid. I was in kindergarten. This is like my earliest memory. And I remember every day after we got ready for school, um, got, our, got our backpacks on and clothes uh, ready, the last thing we would do is run in and grab our lunch money, and we got one dollar and one dime out of the, the jars. And I remember after a few months, I, <laughs> I'm going to out myself a little bit, but I just straight up took gobs of both of them and shoved them in my pocket. It's like, this is just free money. How incredible. And I, just for a couple days in a row, I stole from my parents. Some of you are like, we got to find a new church. This guy's got some problems. And I remember after about three or four days, I, w- I felt bad. And I remember thinking, and this wasn't like this, this great theological moment I had. This is just how I naturally thought of my parents. I, I took all of the money back, plus a little bit. Dad, if you're listening, I added a little bit of interest. I, I took it back, and I, I, I put the, the coins back in, and I put the, the dollars back in. And just th- this week, I was thinking, why did I do that? And I did not do that because, like, oh, my gosh, if they find out, they're going to spank me. That's just not what I was thinking. What I was thinking is... <sighs> Why did I do that? Like, my parents are so good to me. Like, they're so, they're, they're great parents. Why on earth would I violate what they have already done to me? That's grace thinking. It's, it's, it's a very different motivation towards holiness than law thinking. We've got to train our minds to think grace, not law. That is how we deal with sin and, and walk in freedom. It's not submitting ourselves back to the old ways of the law. It's submitting ourselves to what John Owen said. He's like, so when I'm tempted to sin, or if I sin and I need to confess, I need to repent, I don't think about all the consequences. I think, what has Jesus already done for me? He died for me, he gave me his spirit, he adopted me into God's family, and I focus on those things, and then out of gratitude, then I I, I want to worship, and that's how you train yourself to think in terms of grace, not law. But if you're like me, you're going to have to do this every day. Retrain your mind, this is part of what it means to be transformed, to think in terms of grace, not law. Number three, how serious... Should we defend our freedom against sin? If we know how Jesus accomplished our freedom and we know how we're going to walk into it, the question then is how serious should we take, should we defend our freedom against our flesh? And I'll just say this, I think probably much more serious than most of us do. Paul is about to say how serious should you be about sin? And I'll start off with a quote from a man named A.W. Tozer. He wrote a book called The Pursuit of God, and he says this. It's on the screen. He says, the ancient curse, meaning this, the, the flesh, what Paul's talking about, these old desires uh, to, to sin. The ancient curse will not go out painlessly. That tough old miser within us will not lie down and die in obedience to our command. He must be torn out of our heart like a plant from the soil. He must be extracted in agony and blood like a tooth from the jaw. 
He must be expelled from our soul by violence as Christ expelled the money changers from the temple. Here's how Paul phrases it in Romans chapter 8, verses 12 and 13. How serious should you defend your freedom against your sin? So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. That's the law of the spirit of death. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And that word, that that phrase in the original language, put to death, that is a violent and a complete and a total action. In honor of Father's Day, I'll share some more stories. My son and I, uh, I took Judah uh, deer hunting a couple years ago at my grandmother's ranch up in the uh, panhandle. And after we had hunted all morning, we came back by this, uh, this hay barn that she had. Uh, and I, I remember opening the door, and I was going in just to check on things. And as I stepped over the threshold to just walk in, my eyes had not adjusted yet um, from the brightness, so I couldn't see inside this dark barn. And Judah just grabs my arm and yanks me back out. And I don't know how, but he'd seen this huge rattlesnake that was coiled up right inside the door. And so after I collected myself and changed my pants and uh, realized what was going on, I thought, you know, uh, we're going to kill this sucker because that's what you do. Because the only good snake is a dead snake. What about a, a slightly dead snake? No. What do you do with a rattlesnake? This is what I did. I said, Judah, watch and learn. Crushed it with a two-by-four shot it in the head, cut its head off, buried its head, and ran away, screaming. Ah. It's like, why? Because you don't stop until it's dead. Like, even when it's dead, it can still bite you with its reflexes. It's still ha- like, do you treat your sin like that? That's what it's talking about. And, and the, 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 the Puritans, they called it the mortification of sin. Kill your sin. Why? Because, like, you have to be convinced your sin will kill things. If you don't deal with it, it will kill your marriage. If you don't deal with it, it will kill your sin. Like, sin leads to death. James said that. Like, the logical end of sin is death. If you want life, be violent and complete in your action against your sin. The Puritans called it the mortification of sin. John Owen wrote a whole book about it, and he says this. He says that it is the, uh, the what, what, where he says it in, 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 uh, in English for us, the spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body. You, the mortification of sin, he says this is the ruthless, full-hearted resistance to sin. Like you say, I want a, a life that is, is full of life and full of peace and I want to set my mind on the things of the Spirit, then learn to be aggressive and to put your sin to death. What would it look like in your life if you took verse 13 seriously that Paul says, if you live according to the flesh, that means sin. Like if, if you choose to sin, something's going to die. It doesn't mean that you're going to be separated from God. You belong to God forever, but the laws of, of sin still can affect things and hurt things and kill things. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. What if you treated your sin like you would treat a rattlesnake? You're not going to be happy and satisfied until it is dead and gone. What if you treated lust like that? See, a lot of times we try to come up with these plans to manage sin. Nowhere in the Bible are you going to see that 
Paul encourages us to kind of manage our sin. It's like managing a rattlesnake. That's ju- you just don't do that. Jesus did not die so that you could manage your sin. Jesus died so that you could put your sin to death. What would it look like in your life to put lust to death? What would you do? What would you think? What would you change? What about envy? If at some point we trust God that envy leads to something dying and leads to to something negative because that's the way of the flesh, what would it look like by the Spirit for you to put envy to death? What about greed? See, we have to be convinced by the Spirit that greed leads to something bad because it's just like in our world, not that bad of a sin. What would it look like for you to aggressively put to death greed? What about gossip? Anybody ever in here gossiped? Any of you ever had somebody gossip against you? It kills things. What would it look like for you with gossip and with slander to put that to death in your life, in your heart, and your lips? What about unrighteous anger? All, all anger is not unrighteous. Jesus was angry. We just read about it from Tozer. Like, what would it look like in your life to put to death unrighteous anger? What about disbelief, where you're tempted to not believe? That's sin. Anything that is not of faith is sin. What would it look like for you to aggressively mortify and put that to death? What about selfishness? What would that look like if by the Spirit you put to death selfishness? What about drunkenness? That's caused a lot of problems in our city. A lot of you may need to be convinced that God's word is true and sin brings forth death and he has released you from the power of sin and death, given you a new master, the law of the spirit of life. And what would it look like for you to at all costs get a hold of your drinking? What if you put it to death? What about sexual sin? What would it look like for you to put it to death? How serious should we defend our freedom against our flesh? Paul says to put it to death if you truly want to live the life and the peace that Jesus has for you. John Stott says this, and I'm done. He says, if you allow it, talking about your sin, your old selfish flesh, your old nature, if you allow it to prosper and to grow, there will be terrible trouble. Instead, you must, by the Spirit, attack and put it to death. The more you put to death the sinful nature, the more you will enjoy the spiritual life that the Holy Spirit gives, life and peace. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We're grateful that you defeated and you set aside and you fully conquered the old laws of sin and death, that you did something that we just simply could not do. And you changed and you reinstated a new natural law that oversees us, the law of the spirit of life. That when the spirit fills us, we follow your commands. You change our hearts, you change our desires, and we follow in the way of life and peace. So thank you so much for doing that for us and for giving it to us as a gift of grace. Father, I pray that you would help us to truly believe that and walk in that. Help us and teach us and show us truly what it means in our lives to fix our minds on the things of the spirit. I pray that in doing so, you would truly transform us. 
And I pray that as you transform our lives and we have lives that are full of joy and peace and life, that it would catch the world off guard and that they would ask questions and they would desire uh, just the, the life and the freedom and the peace that we have and we would have a chance to tell someone about Jesus. And I pray that this is not just a theological concept that we believe, but it's true and it's your spirit actively changing our lives day in and day out. We need you. We love you. We thank you. We praise you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Thank you for joining us today on this podcast. We would love for you to join us at one of our in-person services as well. For more information or to support our ministry, please visit RedeemerMidland.org.